Hi there and welcome to our podcast for College Catholics, where we discuss faith and spirituality from a Catholic perspective. I'm Father Patrick and today we will welcome a guest to speak about one particular aspect of the priesthood in the Catholic Church, more particularly the Latin Church, and that is the aspect of celibacy in the priesthood. Why uh, Catholic priests are required to be celibate, right? So, what is celibacy about, and how, and why does the Church want to keep this discipline that seems to be many times such a controversial practice for so many people? Our guest today is Dr. Lawrence Feingold, who obtained his doctoral degree in dogmatic theology at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross, and is now a professor of theology at Kendrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis. He is an expert in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. He has written several very profound and useful books if you want to learn about the Catholic faith. Dr. Feingold, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for, your, for having me. It's a Hi. great pleasure. Of course. great. Always great to have you. Um, a first quick question. I mentioned that you wrote several good, profound books. Uh, if you were to recommend one book to our college students or lay people that are listening, or maybe seminarians that could be listening, which one would that be of the ones that you wrote? Um, well, this is the bishops have called a, a Eucharistic revival. And so I have a book on the Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion, as a way to go deeper in this time of reflection on the Eucharist. Perfect. So the one on the Eucharist, I will put the link for those who are listening, I'll put the link in uh, the description or the show notes below uh, in, in the episode. And has there been any interesting anecdote uh, in your life in the past or coming up? Um, well, I teach at a seminary here in St. Louis, Wonderful. and it's ordination season. And so tomorrow there's a diaconate ordination. And just a few days ago, the um, those about to be ordained deacon made their promises of celibacy um, and obedience to the bishop in front of the whole community. And it was it was very moving, right? Because they're making a lifelong commitment to Absolutely. Um, yeah, to celibacy for the kingdom. Um, and yes, that was and so some of them I've known for many years. And it was Wonderful. it was a profoundly moving experience. So so they did their promise and also they do a profession of faith. And then they they will be ordained deacons. So as a uh, deacon yeah, tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. Yeah, they'll repeat that before the bishop Wonderful. and the whole community. So and that means that they begin to participate in the sacrament of holy orders. Right, it's the first grade, right? It's the, an, the only sacrament with three grades, the bishop being the fullness of holy orders, then the priest, and then the deacon um, participating in, in that sacrament. So they will be called transitional deacons because they're right. meant to be ordained mm -hmm. priests but they already can celebrate uh, baptism and baptisms as ordinary ministers. Okay. Uh, weddings, uh, they can preach and they can distribute communion and also help the priest more direct in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, right? Right. We're going to supposedly, how long does it take after, until they are ordained priests? Another year. Yeah, and so in a couple of weeks, we'll have our priestly ordination for the um, those who have, were ordained as deacons last year. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'll keep them on in our prayers. Now, um, so good good that you introduced that of the deacons. Um, so there's, I think there's no question that uh, celibacy is always, uh, has been, and I think will continue to be to some extent, a 
sign of contradiction, right? Not for Catholics, because Catholics appreciate that, but more for the worldly world, something that the world or the secular society uh, will more or less always kind of challenge, right, in one way or another, right? So, uh, however, on the other hand, um, it's clearly a practice that our Lord Jesus Christ embraced. He lived a celibate life, and that his disciples, or some of them, embraced as well. Uh, so, would you be able to tell us a little bit uh, about the history of celibacy, where it comes from? Is it a merely human invention, or something that the leaders of the church, the bishops, some pope, uh, at one point in history started practicing for some reason, or or where it come, where does it come from? Right. Well, as you said, it comes from our Lord. Right. It was the form of life that He embraced. So it should. It has a Christological meaning. It points to Christ. And for that reason is appropriate to those who are called to receive the sacrament of holy orders, especially at the level of priesthood, um, to act in the person of Christ, the bridegroom of the church. And so that's something very interesting. It has a, it's connected to the sacrament of matrimony, priestly celibacy, surprisingly, I think, for some people. And it's appropriate for someone acting in the person of Jesus, the bridegroom of the world, right? So Jesus couldn't have, it would have been very unfitting for Jesus to have been you know, married to some one individual, right. Magdalene, because he's the, the bridegroom, capital B, for every human being. Right. Um, and so priestly celibacy ha is, should be seen as a Christological kind of mystery. Um, as a part of it. And then it's true that there were, before Christ in Israel, there was some practice, but it was above all associated with ritual purity for the priests of Israel. So not a lifetime practice, but just for the time of their priestly service. What, and there were some communion. What does, what does ritual purity mean? Right. So, for example, a priest in Israel had to be ritually pure from contact with profane things that would... Um, before his priestly service in the temple. Uh, and so um, he couldn't have intimacy with his wife during the time of his priestly service. But the priestly service wasn't every Forever. month of the year, but just one month. Uh, right. So that would be some kind of figure of it in the Old Testament. Um, and there was also the community of Essenes that lived a kind of ritual purity in a more permanent way. Mm -hmm. But again, not... Um, not central to the life of Israel. It's with Jesus that it becomes um, central. And we can see that the apostles, some of them, Peter was married, right? right. But um, the key text here is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where St. Paul speaks about imitating the life of Jesus and that St. Paul himself lived that celibate life. And he speaks of it as a way of being totally for the Lord, um, as a way of, um, in other words, it involves a spousal, priestly celibacy isn't a contradiction with the fact that we have a spousal nature. I'm taking that from John Paul II. Right. In his Theology of the Body, he says, every human being has a spousal nature. We're made male and female right from the beginning, right. Genesis chapter 2. And celibacy isn't contrary to that. It's a way of living that already now um, with reference to the Lord. And in a sense, it, it like elevates, because I, I always tell uh, young men who are 
thinking about the priesthood, right? That a, whenever you see a priest, you shouldn't think about a man who didn't want to get married, right? right? And therefore he's single, sort of. Mm -hmm. No, you have to see a man who wanted to get married and was willing to offer that up in order to give his heart as if his were as if it were in a spousal relationship uh, with Christ, with Jesus Christ, and with the whole church, meaning all the faithful with whom he's going to be uh, working for. Uh, but not one in, in in particular. So all of all of the church, the body of the church. Right. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And we make a big point of that here at the seminary in priestly formation. Right. So if um, if a seminarian has a bachelor mentality, right. that's a huge problem. Right. 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 That right. Priestly celibacy isn't being a bachelor. It's being having a spousal relationship with the Lord and with the church. Um, and he's um, committed, right? So he elevate it elevates the love to a supernatural level, but it's still right. There's a commitment between the priest and Jesus Christ, right? And it also involves that aspect of sacrifice, right? So if, if for somebody it wasn't a sacrifice, then that wouldn't it it would lose its meaning, right? Um, because that's part of it, Jesus lived a sacrificial life that ended up on Calvary, but it's, a again, a beautiful sacrifice of love, not... Um... Right. Right. Now, um, at the same time, another question that uh, I would like to, or a topic connected to this is, what does celibacy actually mean, right? Of course, it has related to all this, but what does it mean? What does it imply? And if there's... Uh, maybe some type of definition that the average college student uh, could understand um, and also so so that they understand why is is it that some men are called and i think many men are called young men are called to embrace celibacy in the priesthood but if they don't understand what it means uh, right it, it may be like why would i do that why why like they say many times why would you do that to yourself you know <laughs> right um, so celibacy is involves the renunciation of right. matrimony for the sake of the kingdom. So that's very important. And that's from Jesus in the Gospels when he spoke about eunuchs, three kinds of eunuchs, some by nature, some by other men, and some by for the sake of the kingdom. And so that's a voluntary, voluntary. renunciation of some great good. Out right? of love. Out of love um, for the Lord and the spreading of his kingdom. Um, so that's what would mean, and it involves, like marriage, a lifelong commitment to the Lord. Right, it and cannot be only for a, a time. State. Right, and again, like marriage, there's a fitting, fittingness that it be publicly professed um, with a similar commitment. What, what, does, what does that mean, publicly professed? Yeah, like I mentioned about the, the deacons before the community, making this promise. So there has to be witnesses, many witnesses. Yeah, wit many witnesses. <laughs> and they'll make it in their ordination day, and likewise right. religious make it right. before the community. Right. And also, uh, I would say something that uh, sometimes maybe some young men or yeah, people in the world don't always understand, it, it's not just not having a family, and it's not just having not having uh, sexual relationships with a woman, is also uh, guarding the affection of the heart, right? So the the love and the affection of the heart shouldn't be given to a particular woman, even though 
in any other aspect, in every other uh, physical aspect, there's a distance, you know? So, like, there has to be an affection for God and love for God, and then for everyone else, more like, uh, if you would say, with a certain detachment and equal, like, uh, right. to love everybody right. in, a, in an equal right. way. And therefore nourished by a life of prayer, right? So without that life of prayer, it um, it won't it won't, won't work. Be lived. <laughs> right? Won't work. Right, right. So, um, so here's you asked a, me about the history. I didn't give. Ah, uh, yeah, the history. You wanna... Please, yeah, the history of. Well, let's go back to the okay. history of, of of celibacy because that's I think very important also to see. Uh, after there's a like another question, can it be changed? Right. So looking at the history helps us to see. Can it be changed? Would it be changed? No, no. So first, let's go to the history. Okay. So it's difficult um, from historical means alone to know um, exactly about the early church. So the first couple centuries, a little difficult for us because we just lack many documents. So we do know that some of the apostles were married like Peter and others were not like Paul. Um, but no. did they practice right. conjugal relations after they were sent out by Jesus as apostles. It seems not. We're not given any indication of that in the Acts of the Apostles, that Peter's wife continued to follow him around and he continued to raise children. But again, that's somewhat an argument of silence. And we start to find out about that in the fourth century. So there's a, a regional council in Spain, Elvira, which speaks of priestly celibacy um, as an apostolic tradition. Not that there weren't married priests, yes, there were, but um, from the moment of ordination to the diaconate or to the, um, they um, made the promise of um, living as brother and sister, those who right. had been married. And with a penalty, a significant penalty of being deposed from the priesthood if wow. they continued to have children. So that's from a regional council in Spain, but it's reasonable to think that similar practices existed in other parts of the um at least the um, of the of the church. And what what about the bishops? Uh, in the case of the and bishops, bishops, were always um, unmarried. Okay. Um, at least from our our records, and that continues to be the case in the Eastern Rite. Perfect. And so bishops are chosen from religious orders in mm -hmm. the Eastern Rites and the Orthodox, um, where they've made a vow of celibacy. Perfect. Yeah, and so the the practice began to diverge, as far as we can see, east and west, in the late 7th century, where there's a canon in um, an eastern council, the Council of Trullo, that permitted um, priests who were married before ordination, right? So you, you couldn't, ordination um, in both east and west um, meant that one couldn't get married after that. Perfect. Um, but one could, in the... Um, have been married before, but we saw in the West, ordination meant um, promising to live as brother and sister. And by the way, this is why the wives had to consent to the ordination of their husbands, right, of course. because it <laughs> impacted their family life. Right, um, right. And so this never happened without mutual consent, right? Very important to state that. Um, but in the East, in the late seventh century and afterwards, um, there was granted the um, the fact that they continued to have children after ordination, as long as they were married prior to that. Um, and uh, St. Paul also speaks about being married only once. One couldn't have been married twice. And one of the reasons that, that many of the Father's Church give for that is that would show if a person had been married twice after, in other words, his first wife died and got remarried, that would show that he wasn't um, um, 
fit for living a celibate life or um, at least that's the reason given by some fathers for that um, saying of St. Paul. Yeah, that scripture. Um, and so that's how the two rites began to diverge in the um, 7th and 8th centuries, and which continues today. Perfect. But there's, as you mentioned, we both hold in common that bishops um, can't, um, bishops have to be celibate um, in both East and West, and um, one can't be married after ordination in both East and West. Which which shows a, like, a, like a preference, right? A preference right. and a high standard, a goal, an ideal. Right? right, the bishop and those who are or, already ordained have a certain uh, obligation of being celibate. Right, and that ideal is also explained by Saint Paul in First Corinthians chapter seven, where he speaks about um, the value of being um, un- not having one wife, so as to be fully available for the Lord, um, not just in min- in ministerial work, but also in the heart. Right. Right. Very good. And then, has there been any challenges to this? Any and confirmations? How many times did the church did the church always live celibacy? Was there was there any changes in history okay. after that? So, in the ninth um, and tenth centuries, the church in the West was in hard times. They weren't good centuries. This is the time of the Dark Ages, and there were a lot of abuses of this practice. In other words, many priests living. Um, with a concubine. Right. And um, since they couldn't get married after ordination, they lived with a concubine. And so that was a huge abuse. And in the 11th century, there was a great reform, the Gregorian reform, um, in which the, um, the canons about priestly celibacy were ob- observed again. Right. And so, so that's it when many. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the church didn't want celibacy. Is that the practice was relaxed by right. in, in practice by some priest or many priests? Right, and in, in in other words, it was a kind of corruption. It was a right. um, a lack of fidelity to the um, codes of canon law right. and the ideal. That was still there. It was still there. That's right. right. But it wasn't being fully observed. Perfect. And so the 11th century is an important moment of reform in the church. Right, one of the many great movements of reform to go back to the full practice. Um, and um, so that's very often people say, ah, that's the origin of priestly celibacy. That's not true, right? That was just um, a return to the f- earlier practice. Right. Perfect. Or, or and, like an enforcement and, of the law. Right. And that continues till today. Now, yes, it is a practice. It's not, it's not as if a married priest invalidly exercises priesthood. Certainly not, right? That Because the Eastern Church has a valid priesthood. So it's not like male gender, right? That's necessary for the validity of receiving holy orders. Of course. So this is a practice rather than um, something necessary validity, but it's a, a matter of fittingness. And so the Catholic Church has judged through the centuries that it is fitting, and not only fitting, but a jewel and a treasure of the church. And so I think, yes, it's something that future popes could change, but I think they're unlikely to change for that very reason, that it's a treasure of the church that has proven itself to be spiritually fruitful over the centuries in so many marvelous ways. And what you said it is fitting. It's a reason of fittingness. Why, briefly, why would it be fitting for the priest to be celibate? 
um, above all, because Jesus right. lived that life, right? <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's again, it's so that the priest can be live the Jesus's life of self radical self gift right. to his father and to the faithful, right? And it's the same with the priest. It's not first for the faithful; it's first to the father, right? right. But and then to the faithful. And so that's the, the above all the reason of fittingness. Very often people bring in more practical con- considerations, uh, how much, you know, I don't know, seminary formation. And those practical considerations are real, but that's not the principal thing, right? And the being celibate does allow a priest to um, focus, you know, on the mission, but it's got to be first and foremost Christological and rooted in prayer and the affection of the heart given to. Christ. Right. Now, I have a question um, that maybe it's not uh, within the reason of fittingness, but isn't it true that a celibate life well-lived makes the uh, the life of the priest more fruitful from a spiritual point of view? Yes, absolutely. Everyone, maybe I'm not going to answer this entirely directly, but all Everyone um, is, I mentioned, has a spousal nature and is called to spiritual fatherhood right, right. and spiritual motherhood. But, um, and yes, lay people exercise not just biological fatherhood and motherhood, right? I've had one son, but right. we're also called, all of us, to exercise spiritual fatherhood and motherhood. But renouncing on biological fatherhood for the sake of the kingdom, right? That's the key. It has right. to be for the sake of the kingdom. That can give added power through that very sacrifice to spiritual fatherhood. Right. So that that extend more. Right. And that's a reason, a spiritual, supernatural reason that most people don't see. They don't see right. it because they, they maybe don't believe in it or they don't, they don't experience it or they just simply, they don't see it. But it is true, and it's good to share, right, that a great reason for the celibacy, a spiritual reason for celibacy, is to enable the priest to be fruitful from a spiritual apostolic point of view. Absolutely. Wonderful. And um, so in that sense, um, again, the secular, connected to this last thing, right, the secular mentality would look at celibacy and sometimes see it as a practice that brings, like, sterility to the one who practices it, right? To the priest. Oh, you're you're sad, you're you like a loser, you know, and therefore it's a sort of thwarting uh, my personality. I, I've heard some theologians argue that way, that it ruins psychologically. So we're all bitter and angry and like do steal money and had to get drunk or something. Uh, so it ruins the personality of the priest, it thwarts it. So First of all, if you can address that, and what would be then the spiritual meaning, and and on the contrary, the the spiritual growth that it provides, right, to the right. priest. Yeah, I think in many ways we've given a partial answer to that, um, and so as long as it's lived for the sake of the kingdom in a spousal relationship, for the sake of a greater fatherhood, mm-hmm. it's not going to have those effects. Right? It would only have those effects if I were not living a spousal relationship or a fatherhood. But it's precisely to empower that um, directly to the Lord. So we could even bring in here um, 
the the eschatological dimension. Mm -hmm. So in heaven, Jesus tells us we're not going to be entering into new marriages because we'll all be married to the one bridegroom, Christ. And so um, celibacy involves living that already here and now, so an eschatological, but that involves the heart and has to, um, but again, without prayer, one won't live that well. Um, And so, no, it doesn't damage the priest any more than it (laughs) damaged Jesus, our Lord, or Mary, right? right? Right, Who are the two great exemplars of the celibate life, obviously. Very good. And so we addressed a little bit about this, but I like more specifically, what does it mean that it's a discipline in the church? If it's merely a rule, is it a law? Could it change? Does it come from God? Is it something that we invented? As you, is it something that it's valuable, a treasure? And, uh, you know, right. what does that mean, this discipline thing? And to what extent? Because in a sense, it, yes, it is a let's say if you want to talk talk about it philosophically yes it is a discipline but it's much more than just a discipline like it could be the hours of fasting before communion right so right. what does it mean a different it's a discipline and what's the difference between some other disciplines that can be easily okay. changed like the rosary or whatever right yeah so i think that earliest council that i meant that mentioned that touched on celibacy the council of elvira in spain in i think 306 um, called an, an apostolic tradition, not mm. with a capital T in the same way as you know the revelation, the creed, but um, an apostolic practice um, that has a perennial fittingness. So in that sense, it's different than other small. So we make a distinction: big T tradition and small T traditions plural. Small T traditions plural can change. Um, but this particular tradition is rooted in the life of the church from its very origin in the person of Jesus and his mother. And the practice of you know, Paul and the other um, apostles and, um, and the whole Latin church throughout her history. So in that sense, it's, um, it's not just a changeable discipline, but a discipline that's Fittingness is doctrinal, I think. Right, right, right. I think uh, uh, Benedict XVI speaks a little bit, a little bit, not a whole lot, but a little bit about that in the book he wrote from the depths of our hearts. Um, and in this recent controversy about uh, some a year ago or so uh, about the um, celibacy, and he explained, yes, it's a discipline, but it's very fitting that it should be that way for men that are going to ded- be dedicated for the offering of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and so forth. And therefore, uh, it is connected intimately to the nature of the priesthood, right? right? And that's why, yes, it's a discipline, but one of those disciplines that are probably never going to change, and we pray, and that's we have to fight for that never going to change aspect, right? Because Right, right. Obviously, dispensations are made right now, right. right? In certain rare cases of an Episcopalian priest who, um, who becomes Catholic, yeah, converts. I have a friend who's a married priest. But right, again, right. and likewise in the Catholic um, um, of the Eastern Rite. Um, right. But right. Di- dispensations that are rarely given. 
Right, right. So, so yes, I, I see then, uh, just to summarize a little bit, uh, how celibacy is, is a way, uh, I, I was a priest, I have to live celibacy, I, I pray that I may persevere until death, right, and celibacy, um, but it is a way to offer myself, my time to the church and to, to God, right, uh, offer your heart, and it's something that one, as a priest, uh, renews every every time that you say the Mass or that you're in adoration before our Lord, right, to to offer your heart to Him. We want to love God above all, uh, but it's at the same time a sacrifice of something human, uh, something of the natural order that one would have liked to embrace, like a family and so forth. And many times the priest has to kind of renew that sacrifice when you baptize children. It's nice to see the children, but, well, I won't have my children in a physical way, right? Uh, so I, I, it helps me open up to a supernatural love of, of all these people. And it, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I just I wanted to say this earlier, and then I forgot. Um, when you asked about damaging the personality of the priest, I, so I teach at a seminary, and there's such a there's an atmosphere of joy here among right. the seminarians and among the priest formators. And I always observe the same thing in teaching Miles Christi that that commitment to celibacy right. doesn't take away the joy, a supernatural joy of living Christ's life to the full. Right, right. And then also the um, the living out celibacy, of course, it's not easy. It's not an easy uh, path of roses, right? It's, there's always uh, dangers, there's always uh, sacrifices, but it, this, it, it also kind of pushes me as a priest. It leads me to center more and more my love and my affection more in Jesus Christ and particularly in the Eucharistic Christ, right? Jesus and the Eucharist whom whom we handle in a sense in, in the Mass and whom we consecrate, right? Uh, and to work also to to work more intently for the salvation of souls because these are my spiritual children, right? Um, so that's, that's uh, more or less a, a brief reflection there. Now, I have a specific question because I mentioned uh, to some seminarians and, and young men and to see who, if someone would answer, right, that I'm going to have this interview about celibacy. And one of them sent me a question to ask uh, in this podcast, right? So he, this is the question, so I'll uh, let you answer it. Uh, concerning priestly celibacy, I understand that while the priest is called to forego marriage and, and a natural spousal relationship with a woman, he is also called to a unique, intimate relationship with the Lord. What exactly is this relationship he is called to, and how does it differ from a lay faithful, faithful's relationship with the Lord? So I, I guess I would say, essentially, it doesn't differ. We're all called to live that love to the Lord. But the married person, it's sacramentally mediated by another person, my wife. Right, So I'm married. And so my wife, Marcia, mediates sacramentally my love for the Lord. And in those who make the promise of celibacy for the kingdom, it's without mediation. And that's right. a glory. I mean, both callings are beautiful and they're both spousal but there's something very glorious and eschatological about it not being mediated by another mm -hmm. person but of course the other is also very beautiful right 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 if of that's course. the call we've been given of course of course um i remember now that we're talking i remember an anecdote you mentioned about father desmet and uh -huh. uh, some of the flatheads or the Native Americans that worked with him and how 
there were other uh, denominations sending their pastors, and somehow they diff they were able to distinguish one from another. And what was it that they said? They preferred what there was something. Right. They, that preferred they preferred the black robes. <laughs> that was the name they gave to the Jesuit missionaries right. to the Protestant pastors here. No offense to our right, separated right. brothers and sisters, but simply what stood out to them was the celibacy. The fact that the black robes were totally available for God and for them and because of their vow of celibacy. And um, they didn't see that in the married pastors right. of the Protestant denominations. So that's a beautiful witness of the North American Indians in the Rocky Mountains at the first evangelization. Wonderful. Right, because that shows even without theology, they could tell there was a difference. And they, they, they identified that as a sign of God's call and God's witness, like a, a, a sign of credibility. Right, a motive of credibility, exactly. Right, right. Very good. Any final thoughts or any recommendations regarding celibacy for priests, for brothers that may be listening, for seminarians, or for young men, college students that might be thinking about the priesthood, but they're like really concerned because they would like to have a girlfriend and they like a girl and so forth? God will not be outdone in generosity. I, that's my, um, I mean, I just, everyone's life, I think, shows that to the degree that we make sacrifice for the Lord. And um, he may, he certainly, certainly will give us trials, but he won't be outdone in generosity with regard to the sacrifice we offer. But he, and we have to take the means and that's going to be above all a life of prayer, right? Without a life of prayer, it can't be lived. And then secondly, to live priestly fraternity. I see that here at the seminary mm -hmm. and um, in religious stores like Miles Christi, that aspect of priestly fraternity is really important um, in combating, you know, a natural human loneliness that uh, right right i remember once we were in ewtn and they asked us uh, there was a lady uh, on call and they asked what keeps you going and father martin answered you know the holy eucharist and i remember mentioning the the community life right mm -hmm, so yeah. knowing that you have other priests that share the same uh, happiness the joys and the difficulties and the hardships and the struggles each day Sometimes one is uh, supports the other, and the other day the other one supports the other, and that helps you because you have someone to, you know, share some things, talk about some things, uh, because you indeed, yeah, you you if you were alone, you would have to talk to the TV or something or to YouTube, you know, <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, thank you so so much for spending our your time with us today. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Yes, and thank you everyone who uh, listens today to this episode. Uh, if you like this episode, please share it with others. And also, if you can, please uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. May God bless you, and we will see you next time.